I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on civil rights and the global rise of neo-nationalism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. When we decided about two months ago to hold a Black Women's Roundtable in response to the vice presidential debate, we could not have possibly predicted the otherworldly events that led up to it. We couldn't have known that the president himself would get infected with COVID. And we couldn't have predicted that Vice President Mike Pence's potential exposure to the virus would give a new meaning to the life and death stakes of this election. And who in the world could have foreseen that the October surprise would show up in this debate in the form of an uninvited guest that took up residence in Mike Pence's hair? We did know, however, that the debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence would be a history-making affair, and that as black women, we would have to have our say the morning after. And have our say, we did. But first, let's cue up a few things. 215,000 people have now died from COVID in the United States which holds 4% of the world's population and more than 22% of its coronavirus deaths. The nation's leading medical journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, which has historically been nonpartisan, has for the first time called for the ouster of the president, saying that the Trump administration's horrific COVID response, which caused tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths, was dangerously incompetent. They went on to say that we should not abet them and enable other deaths by allowing them to keep their jobs. This is unprecedented. And so is the fact that our economy is in ruins. We're witnessing the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. We've got credible threats to the rule of law from the chief executive, who is the first president ever who will not commit to a peaceful transition of power should he lose this election. A president who has undermined confidence in the vote by spreading misinformation, hamstringing the Postal Service, even appealing to the Supreme Court for an assist. And in addition to all of this, he refused to repudiate white supremacists, denies the existence of systemic racism, coddles vigilante murderers and would-be kidnappers of a Democratic governor, owes $400 million in debt to some unknown creditors, and helms a party that stands behind his every move. I leave it to you all to say what kind of show this is that Donald Trump is starring in. Enter Kamala Harris and Black women. Joining me at this virtual Black Girl Roundtable were Barbara Arnwine, president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition and trailblazing leader in the protection of voting rights. 
Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and principal at Black Futures Lab. Kirsten West Savali, an executive producer at Essence Magazine, serving as the magazine's senior editor of news and politics. And Congresswoman Barbara Lee, one of my personal sheroes, the U.S. representative for California's 13th congressional district. I began by asking Representative Lee to set the stage for us to describe the unique tightrope that Senator Harris had to walk as the first black woman vice presidential nominee for a major party. I'm so glad to be with everyone today uh, with all of our women warriors on this panel. And Kimberly, just to you, I think you, you should feel very proud of the fact that finally intersectionality is, is really before the public. We understand what racial and gender equality, healthcare disparities and equality, and where all of these issues come together and intersect. And I think Senator Harris is the epitome of what you've been talking about and writing about and preaching about and teaching about for years. So thank you, Kimberly, because I, I think we need to recognize that. I wasn't really worried about anything last night about uh, Senator Harris um, and the debate, and primarily because I know that she was going to be herself. And you have to be authentic for the public to embrace your ideas and your issues. And she has all of her life, and since I've known her, and this has been a while, um, has been for real. And she knows how to push back without going ballistic on someone where you would lose what she was trying to say or pull out of, of Pence, but uh, made him look like, in many ways, a, a white supremacist. <laughs> I mean, and the way he tried to uh, make her answer uh, his questions was outrageous. It was totally disrespectful. And, and so I think that uh, we saw someone who was smart last night, uh, also someone who was compassionate and genuine, but who was not going to let uh, this white conservative man take advantage of her. And he showed who he was uh, and she showed who she was. And I think her message got across very clearly in terms of her strategy and how she uh, responded and put forth her presentation. And it, and it did take strategy. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I worry that people don't necessarily see the strategic choices that Black women have to make uh, when they're performing. It, it, it reminds me of many, many years ago when the Williams sisters started playing. And they were whooping butt all over the place. And it just got attributed to their strength rather than their ability to strategically lay out a plan for decimation. That's um, right. <laughs> that's what we saw, that's you know, what we saying, saw. Now, come with the smile on and lethal throughout the whole debate. Yeah, and the look that she gave him, every black woman can relate to, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knew what yes, that look meant. Yes, yes. Love those. Uh, Kirsten, uh, let me go to you. Do, do you have a sense of the, the tightrope that she was walking going in, looking at it as a journalist? Yeah, my expectation going in was that she would have to figure out how he was coming first, right? And let me just say that, you know, the bar is so low. I was a late this morning trying to find the bar for him because I just couldn't see it. You know, we're having conversations today about the fact that he was could even make a coherent sentence, form a coherent sentence means he somehow performed well. So that's frightening in and of itself. But I knew that she would have to come in. I was wondering if she would come in prosecutorial 
or if she would have to come in softer with the, you know, the suburban mom outreach, or she come in with kind of guns blazing. So I was really happy to see COVID-19 be the first question with him being over the task release force, because that's really where we are right now as a nation, particularly for black people and black and brown people. And so, yeah, she came, she did what she needed to do. That look that she gave him, she, she basically, when a grown woman is speaking, shut up, I'm talking. This is, you know, she didn't let him run over her. So I was really glad to see that. And I didn't expect that she would. So that was really good to see. He, and his anger at that, I probably, we'll probably get to that a little bit later, but his anger, his frustration at actually having to step back and let this black woman speak was so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, knowing that she wasn't going to let him run over uh, her, but also knowing that when we defend ourselves or our right to speak, there is some significant part of the population that's going to read us as being angry. And, you know, I do have to take a moment to say, we do kind of have a right to be angry about some stuff, right? So it's sort of like that in and of of itself is a catch-22. I look back on all the angry performances of white men. Shall we remember Kavanaugh, you know, so angry that spit and, and sweat was popping in every direction. And that was enough to secure his ascension to the Supreme Court. And we know a woman couldn't do that. And we know Anita Hill could never have done that. So the straitjacket right there, you know, is defending ourselves and not being seen as angry, even when we might have reason to be annoyed that someone dares to think that they can lecture us on the national stage. So for her to walk that, you know, tightrope to me was masterful. It really was. And, you know, Audre Lorde taught us about the righteous uses of rage, right? And how we need to show up and, yeah, I'm angry. You should be angry. And she really, once she found her groove, which didn't take long and was able to really show, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm frustrated. Yes, people are dying. And we have a corrupt, you know, neglectful, unprepared, malicious in some ways, uh, uh, leadership. Yes, I'm angry. And we all should be. Yes, yes, yes. So Alicia, what were you um, thinking about in terms of the tightrope from obviously, you know, um, this is a moment of the fruition of so much work uh, of elevating some of the issues that have come from protests now to the national stage. Was that uh, creating a tightrope walk that you were really keen to uh, observe Senator Harris manage? Well, absolutely. I mean, I was on eggshells, to be honest. Uh, Last week, what we saw was Black folks got thrown under the bus. We saw three white men going at it about about Black communities and nobody, right, standing up for us. And that was curious, of course, last week because Black voters actually are the ones who uh, really decisively uh, secured this position for former Vice President Joe Biden. So I was a little bit nervous that we were going to go into this uh, debate and see not only this movement, but Black communities uh, get thrown under the bus. In addition to that, I was very concerned. You know, Kamala Harris, I think, is walking an extremely thin tightrope where she can't be too mad, but she can't not be mad. Um, She can't be forceful, but she can't not be forceful. I mean, Black women in particular are in an impossible position, especially in a position like this. And so I was nervous about how this was all going to play out. And then finally, I'll just say, and to be completely honest, uh, I think what we know is that, you know, this ticket is quite interesting. It's historic in a lot of ways. 
but they actually are relatively different in terms of their political positions. And so I was a bit nervous that, uh, you know, Black women and this Black woman in particular was going to have to carry um, a series of positions that may not have been her own. And that, of course, is because of the, the position that she has agreed to take. And so I think we did see that a little bit yesterday in the debate where, you know, Mike Pence, of course, pointed out that her position on fracking, for example, was quite different than that of Vice President Biden. And I think Black women are constantly in this position, right, where we've got to be towing the line and making sure that everybody gets there. Black women often carry that burden on our shoulders, but we may actually think that we can go farther. And so it is a delicate position to be in. But frankly, I, I was mostly worried that Pence would use the kind of baiting uh, that can result in one of a few uh, responses. One response that I think we've seen over and over again is to treat President Trump and their administration as if they're a joke. And I can say quite decisively that they are not a joke, that while some of their positions, a lot of their positions are cringeworthy, uh, are bizarre in a lot of ways, we shouldn't not take them seriously. And sometimes what happens is that in response uh, to their responses, sometimes both Vice President Biden and Senator Harris can do a thing where they kind of uh, emote that they don't take them that seriously. And I think in the position that we're in as a country, we have to stop treating this administration as if they're a joke and start treating them as if they are hungry for power and certainly decided on holding on to power. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you mentioned the throwing under the bus last week. I really want to talk about the um, dimensions of being thrown under the bus that themselves are under the radar. So the equation uh, of Black Lives Matter protesters with those on the other side who are actually killing people, the failure to actually draw that distinction, and now throw in, you know, the attack on anti-racism, which is now happening at the federal level, the attack on the very idea of being able to talk about anti-racism and train people and actually have studies that look into racial disparities, all of these being under attack right now. Um, and and there, there is a sense that the response of the standard bearer could be far more robust, given how much we are relied on to deliver the White House. So I want to come back to that. Um, but before I get back to uh, Representative Lee, who has to leave in a few minutes, uh, Barbara Arnwine, real quick, uh, what did you see uh, the tightrope being going into last night's debate? First of all, let's face it. I mean, he came in with all the cards. He had every federal agency at his disposal to give him any fact he wanted. He's been in a vice presidential debate before. He's campaigned when there was no COVID. So he was able to get out and rally and do all kinds of things. So he came, I thought, into the debate with all the cards. Uh, I knew that she would, as we talked about, that she had this tightrope that she was going to have to uh, navigate within this edifice of white structural racism that we deal every day in patriarchy. But I thought she took a sledgehammer at it, uh, that she did not uh, you know, back off. She came in with a real powerful set of points. She, I mean, she was just, whew, she was just literally cutting from one end to the other when she started. And mm -hmm. I was like, I was sitting back saying, mm-hmm, 
<laughs> at training, right? Uh-huh, this is her. And yeah. it was yeah. not the litigator people predicted. It was not the angry woman. It was not the neutered woman that people told us to expect that they would, you know, send her in kind of trying to be, you know, as nice as she could. It was just her. And I was so happy that she knew how to show up as herself. Yeah. And that was, I think, the most important part of this debate. And it's one reason why she won it. Yes, thank you, Barbara. And, and uh, I want to come back to you, uh, Representative Lee. You, you know a little bit about uh, performing, bringing your authentic self, uh, even when you're the only one uh, showing up. Uh, you've been there. <laughs> so um, I want to just ask you a, a little set of questions because I know you have to go. So let me just throw them out and, and take whichever part you want. As I said at the beginning, um, there, there's a lot being placed in our laps, right? A lot of hope that uh, Black women drive the turnout, a lot of, you know, history about what we've been able to do in Virginia and in the South. And yet there's a question of whether our significance is reflected in investment, investment in leadership investment in get out the vote organizations, investment in an agenda. So if we're looking at this moment where our vice presidential candidate is actually throwing down and showing what black women can do, what can we expect back? What should we be demanding now from the party that we're actually putting into play and making viable at this moment? Yeah. And, and Kimberly, that's a very good question because I know historically, and I, you know, got involved in politics when Shirley Chisholm ran for president. And uh, this was the battle she fought. <laughs> Black women then were out front in terms of saving this Democratic Party. We still are. And there has not been the investment that there should be. I think this is the moment, though, that it will turn around because Black women, if we vote, will win. And I know for a fact that uh, Black women are going to demand a seat at the table, and we're not going to leave until we get those investments. And those investments will be what our priorities are. And not only for Black women, but for the Black community and for the country. It's not going to come just because we vote. <laughs> it's going to come because we're going to be, Alicia, in the streets <laughs> if we have to be protested. I mean, it's going to come. But uh, we can't just sit back and say, now, since Kamala's vice president, we know that this administration is going to make investments uh, in Black women and, and what we believe are our priorities happen. It's, it's just not going to be. And so like any special interest group, <laughs> we're a special interest group. And we have to lobby for those issues and those resources that we believe will help transform not only the Black community, but the entire country. Also, Kevin, let me just say, uh, and I think, Elisa, you, you mentioned um, you know, having a position that may be uh, out of sync with your partner's position. And, and I support a Green New Deal, right? Uh, clearly, uh, I want to ban cracking. <laughs> clearly, uh, I'm for legalization of cannabis. Kamala is the lead sponsor of the bill that I pushed, the Marijuana Justice Act, the MORE Act, right? Which deschedules marijuana provides for restorative justice, uh, expunges all the records, and, and Joe Biden hasn't gotten there yet. But I think the advantage of having a Black woman 
who is on record supporting a more progressive position on issues that speak to the structural reforms that are needed is to our advantage. We have to keep, and I co-chair the Cannabis Caucus, and I was on the drafting committee of the platform. And they came in with a platform that uh, on cannabis that was pretty moderate. It was a little better than before in terms of decriminalization, in terms of restorative justice, but it wasn't all the way legalization. And so I think Black women have a voice in the White House to push the agenda. And so she has to negotiate for us because she has a record of, of addressing systemic racism in a way that maybe no one else has. And so it's gonna be up to us as black women to make sure that uh, we push the envelope. And we know that we have someone on the inside who will strategically help us win. So Representative Lee, since, since you raised that on your way out, let, let me ask you this, because I was really surprised about how uh, Pence tried to tie her up by uh, jumping now on the, the the critique of the criminal justice system, by, by talking about, well, look at your record, look at how, what you've done, after having basically said that they don't believe in systemic racism, right? So number one, Who's he trying to appeal to? What, what, what was happening there, you know, when he was making that move? And I guess this goes to what we need to be saying now to uh, our young people, to our allies who are really about fundamental criminal justice reform. What is it that needs to be said in order to activate and mobilize those who may not be on all fours with either Biden or uh, uh, Senator Harris. What is the messaging to bring them to the polls in this really make or break moment? Yeah, and I think uh, Pence, you know, I mean, Donald Trump supporters are Donald Trump supporters. There are a few independents left and a few people who have not made their mind up. And I think that's who he was trying to play to. So what he's trying to do is trying to say, that she's a hypocrite and, and she's not, but he's trying to make it appear that so he could they can get those independence. But I, I just have to tell you, uh, anyone who can't say they believe systemic racism is real in America, anyone who can't acknowledge white supremacy is at the core <laughs> of their policies, which it is, and anyone who really cannot uh, recognize that this criminal justice system needs to be reformed totally. That gives you enough reason to understand where they're coming from. And, and so this is a matter of life and death. 211,000 people dead, disproportionately black and brown people, 30 million unemployed, millions with the virus. And if anyone listened to what he responded to in terms of the peaceful transfer of power, and I'll close with this, he did not answer that question. He went only to the fact that we're going to win. Any supposedly Democratic candidate can easily say, I believe in the peaceful transfer of power if we lose. And he would not even say that. And so I think it's important to recognize how vulnerable what's left of this democracy is because they made a mockery out of it and have tried to consolidate into moving toward more of an autocratic dictatorship. If we can't see all of that and not vote, I, I'm troubled by our um, view of the world at this point and of where we are as a country and as a people because so much is at stake. We have a lot to lose 
yes, but we have so much to gain if we vote and hold the administration accountable. And that's gonna take us to do. Thank you so much for joining us. I think, you know, we're gonna absolutely have to have one more of these before the vote because we've got to figure out what we need to say to so many people who are disaffected, so many people who are saying, well, how much worse can it get? So many people um, who um, haven't felt well served by democracy. So when we say we're on democracy's last leg, you know, some people are, are shrugging about that. So um, really have to talk about what kind of targeted messaging, what kind of targeted mobilization needs to happen in these final weeks. And I know we can count on you to set us straight about what we need. Cameron, we need, we need to do that. Because remember now, I was a community worker with the Black Panther Party, OK? And then we had to fight to try to deal with this system that was supposedly a democratic system to be responsive to everyone for the people. And it wasn't, and it still isn't. If we don't make it better, if we don't make it real for us, what's our alternative? And we have to really talk about that because that comes to the core of where we are in this country in terms of its systems, and in terms of its institutions and structures. And so, you know, that's a discussion we, we really need to, to have because uh, democracy has not worked for a lot of people in this country. But we have to recognize what it has done also in this last four years to African-Americans and how so many of us have died now as a result of the, just the lack of leadership of this administration. Bottom line, it is about life and death. Absolutely. Well, uh, folks, stay tuned for having our say uh, part three. Uh, Representative Lee, you'll be hearing from us. Thank you so okay. much for sharing Good. your time with Good us. Good seeing everybody. Thank you all very much. <laughs> so let, let's pick up on, on this question that we've just been talking about. And I, I want the you know, sort of point of departure to, to go back to that moment when Pence was trying to, I think, uh, send some bat signals uh, to some folks in our community, recognizing that there, there is an opportunity for uh, them to score uh, some points. And I want to start with just identifying how misogynoir might be playing out inside uh, our own cave, as it were. So Kirsten, let me come to you for a moment. There are some polls that are suggesting that the gender chasm uh, that white folks uh, are looking at is in fact a little bit of a gender gap even among uh, African-Americans when it comes to support for Trump. So we all remember seeing, you know, Jim Brown, we remember Kanye, um, but that's not necessarily just, you know, way, way outliers. There's some polls that give uh, the impression that Trump's approval rating uh, among black men is in the double digits and some say even as high, you know, as 20 plus percent. Uh, what do you make of that? What I see, honestly, Kim, is toxic masculinity has just, is so pervasive. Like you have, you talked about a Kanye who said wearing Make America Great Again hat made him feel like he was more of a man. And what we've seen a lot of, especially in the work that you've done and the work that Black Lives Matter has done, is this hesitation, this resistance to Black women's leadership, to queer people's leadership, to working class and poor cash poor people's leadership. And so when you have Black men in this position 
of not wanting to disrupt a table, but have their seat at a table that, that privileges masculinity, that privileges, privileges men, that dehumanizes women, that dehumanizes children, that takes everything that they think is special, everything that they think makes them strong and powerful in places at the center, you get this. There's a reason why Donald Trump was so popular with, with people in the hip hop community. There are issues here that I think goes back a lot to the idea that how I can be powerful, how I can be free is to oppress other people. And that's, and they're, they're mimicking and they're pattering that after what they see in the Trump administration. So it's not a surprise to me that we see this, is the violence that black women face in our communities every single day, is the silencing that we face every single day, is their erasure that we've been talking about on a political stage and the lack of investment, because there's a lot of, even going back to talking about the right to vote, you know, and Frederick Douglass and, and Susan B. Anthony and them going back and forth about who should have the right to vote at this time. And Frederick Douglass said, you know, black men, that's what I think we see a lot of that here. So yeah, there is, to, to put it simply, it's a matter of not wanting to destroy the table of patriarchy, not wanting to get rid of massage noir, but how can we best benefit? How can we place ourselves at the right hand of this white man? So we too have that same power. Yeah, yeah. You know, I so appreciate your, your putting it that way because we've been talking, you know, uh, not as much as we should about the Supreme Court, for example, um, and the fact that uh, when Clarence Thomas was nominated, it was such a battle in the black community to persuade people that just because he was a black man didn't make his nomination and ascension a good thing you know for black people and i guess the the question that this moment might elevate for us is what are the consequences of allowing you know that inability to integrate a critique of patriarchy into anti-racism uh, continuously uh, presents for us. that That's one of the uh, vulnerabilities, one might say, to getting out the vote. And it's also potentially a vulnerability in suppressing the vote. So, you know, on this, uh, Barbara, I want to come to you because just last week, Channel 4, the news uh, station uh, in the UK that broke the story about Cambridge Analytica and the various ways that you know, digital uh, nefarious things uh, had happened with respect to our democracy, uh, released a study that once again uh, reviewed a huge cache of data. And that data uh, reflected the fact that there was an active campaign on the part of the Trump campaign to actually suppress Black votes with negative messaging. And it was dramatically, uh, disproportionately focused on African-Americans in Wisconsin in particular. Speculation, of course, is that um, had Black folk voted in, in the way that they had in the prior election, Donald Trump would not be in the White House right now. So um, you talk about the many different kinds of vote suppression um, you know, things that people are used to. This is a new one uh, that people really, really aren't used to. So wh what's your thought about how to make people aware of the fact that their votes are being suppressed through this digital targeting? And is the Democratic Party doing enough? Uh, well, I think that, first of all, 
people don't like to admit when they've been manipulated. And we know without a question that uh, 8 million people uh, were affected by accounts that were fronted as being from Blacks and Black organizations that were mainly designed to deter Black voters from voting. Uh, that said, you know, be woke, don't vote. You know, Hillary is a predator, you know, or she said, you know, these things or all these things that they made up. And I think that it was a problem because people really hate to admit that they got manipulated, feeding from this vine. And remember, this was a very sophisticated strategy for months. They did Black history. Oh, you know, Harriet was on the best. They did all kinds of Malcolm X, you know, we love, you know, by any means necessary. So they wrote people in. And then in those final months, they started turning and twisting into a very manipulated uh, process of saying, don't vote. Six states for African-Americans accounted for about, about a 1.5 million Black voter deficit, not only turnout, but I'm talking about spoiled ballots, et cetera. And those states are Georgia, Florida, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Michigan. 14 cities. Um, we need to understand this, that, that these are the places where we got to put our time and energy because they're back. That's the real story here is that it's not just 2016, but they're back and they're doing the same gamesmanship. And Facebook has not done what it should have done to prevent it. And people need to be just very aware that this is the time for what you call trusted messengers. People you can trust. People you know that nobody's buying their voice, not these new all of a sudden folks who come up in your timeline and, and you're liking everything they're saying, not realizing they're building you up for the turnaround. It's a dangerous time. We've got to be careful about amplifying lies. We got to be careful about everything we do right now. But trusted messengers should be the solid foundation for which people retweet, uh, for which they get information, for what they believe because disinformation is their game. Their game is any disruption to voting. It's not just vote by mail, it's what the challengers at the polls, and it's to work the psyche of Black people to depress people and to discourage people. So, so on that note, Alicia, I, I want to sort of uh, pull back and look at what are the conditions that have been allowed to continue so this manipulation can happen. So Barbara has just said, you know, one of the issues is trusted messengers, right? Um, disrupting this ability to groom us by giving us messages that we nod to. We don't know who they are, but we nod to the message. And then they, you know, uh, pivot and use some truth to actually suppress our vote. So a smart party would have learned from 2016. A smart party would have invested in trusted messengers. A smart party would have built up the infrastructures to actually um, turn up and out the vote rather than to leave the situation as it is. So I wanna ask you, because 
you've been working, uh, Black Futures is an effort to gather the information necessary to create agendas that actually lift up the lives of Black people. So, so you're in the trenches. Tell us what you're saying. Is this stuff happening or not? So first and foremost, Kim, I think part of what we just have to deeply understand about the conditions in which this is allowed to happen is, is that it's all racism. So let's, let's jump back for a second. Number one, last night we heard uh, Vice President Mike Pence accuse Senator Kamala Harris of not lifting a finger to help support the First Step Act. And you know, I was sitting on my couch chuckling because I thought to myself, self, um, you know. Tell people about First Step. Well, the First Step Act is an act that essentially I mean, there's a lot to it, but essentially it allows the release of um, some folks from prisons and jails. And this was an act that was pushed forward by Van Jones. Uh, and, you know, I want to be super clear about a couple of things. Number one, um, talk about a black girl magic moment when Kamala Harris got to say, let me tell you something, you don't get to lecture me. <laughs> you don't get to lecture me. You have no standing from which to lecture me. So get it, sis, you're 100% correct. Number two, I think what was interesting about it, frankly, is that it actually highlighted the ways in which these folks think that we are all one entity. Right. Um, you know, the idea that Kamala Harris would need to support the First Step Act in order to support black communities was actually a little bit ridiculous. Uh, and number two, it actually undermined her intelligence as a black woman. You didn't ask her why she decided not to support the First Step Act. You just assumed that because it was being advanced, perhaps by a black man, that she needed to stand up and say, I'm going to help to move this forward white supremacy operates to uh, shape the desires, the stories, the agendas of black people for us and then feed it back to us and tell us if you don't swallow it and if you don't say, mm, thank you, then somehow you're not black or you're not down for the cause. So I just had to say that because that thing got me lifted last night. I said, this, this man got a lot of nerve, but here's the backstory to it. We came into this debate talking about Black Lives Matter so much. I'd never seen the Democratic Party talk so much about Black Lives Matter. It was in alphabet blocks. It was, you know, I mean, they really did the whole thing. But yet when it comes to really deeply engaging Black communities, I think what we find is that people don't have the range. But the problem is that they think they have the range and that's where the tension comes in. So yes, we have known, not just for this last election cycle, but for the last three, that black folks are showing up and showing out black women in particular at higher rates than any other ethnic or gender group. And yet we haven't figured out yet how to deeply invest in our communities to help build the infrastructure needed to widen that base of voters. No, instead they're going after white women in the suburbs and thinking that somehow magically they are going to transform um, deeply ideologically committed Trump voters to becoming Biden voters or Harris voters or just democratic voters. It ain't gonna happen. When it comes to black men, I think there's another issue that we have to face here, which is, you know, both parties, frankly, do the symbolic engagement and never get into the depth of engagement. We tell the same stories and use the same storytellers over and over again. 
Black folks are deeply engaged around hip hop, but not everybody's deeply engaged around hip hop. So you can't keep trotting out hip hop folks to talk to Black folks and act like that's going to be the um, extent of your outreach. You can't keep having candidates go on talk shows and do the Dougie, but not do town halls in our communities about, you know, Medicaid expansion or the lack thereof, not do town halls about the fact that wages are not high enough to support families, particularly ours. And so what we see over and over again is that in these campaigns, you have white folks leading black engagement strategies, and that's a huge issue that we're facing. So across the board, Kim, it's the operationalizing of racism in relationship to the engaging or lack of engaging in our communities. Joe Biden doubled down on this law and order messaging, but he can never be the law and order president. That is a story that has shaped, been shaped by the extreme right. The story about communists and Marxists and you know Antifa taking over the world and trying to build an empire. Um, the story about rioting and looting and black people turning up for no apparent reason, except that we are finally ready to um, you know, deliver retribution to white people. I mean, if it wasn't so ridiculous, it might be funny. Truth be told, if black folks were gonna turn up in retribution, it would have been done already. Trust me, we've had hundreds of years to do that. But second of all, if black voters can't tell the difference between where Democrats stand and where Republicans stand, that in and of itself is a voter suppression tactic. And I don't think that these campaigns have actually deeply internalized this as a pivot that they need to make. They will say Black Lives Matter until they're blue in the face. But when we know that Black Lives Matter is when we see them building deep infrastructure in our communities, not their own infrastructure, but lifting the infrastructure that we have already built through not only trust and relationships, but through experience. Yes, yes. It is a puzzle to try to figure out why it doesn't make more sense to them to invest in their base, right? In in our in our last uh, having our say, you know, we we had to talk about the the politics and the money behind the politics and the fact that it actually even costs more money, you know, to try to go after those you know, Trump voters that they think that they can can peel off, it costs more money, they're willing to pay that money, and it's harder to do than it is to invest and build up the infrastructure of the base that's more likely to vote for you in the first place. So I'm trying to figure out what story is that telling us? Is this political implicit bias that they just see those votes as more valuable, even though they cost more, right? They're harder to get, because you, you got to think that they want to win. So if they want to win, you know, you want to dance at the party, dance with the person who brought you to the party, right? Stop trying to go to get the person who didn't want to be seen with you. So I'm trying to understand how we understand this. So we're in a better position to make the case that this is where the investment needs to go. So on my last question, Barbara, let, let me come back to you. One, one thing we know about, you know, winning elections, if you don't engage your base, you're not going to win an election, right? I mean, and, and the one thing we can say about what we saw with Pence last night, he wasn't trying to move outside of his base, right? They knew that the, the minimal thing that they needed to come out of that with is the base is engaged. They know that the 
ticket is on message, sharing their values, all of that. Our side, you know, uh, often not so much. One can make the argument that in terms of the rhetorical moments, yeah, they have to, you know, make the bid for the, the Trump refugees. Let's give them that for the moment. But behind the scenes, the infrastructure, the reaching out into Black communities, we now know what went wrong in 2016. So what needs to happen for them to learn that lesson? And do you have a sense that it's happening to the extent that it needs to be? First of all, you know, I do think that the Democrats have a problem uh, in many regards. I mean, you know, this whole vote by mail strategy, if they have been talking to those of us who know how black voters vote, we would have told them that was a huge mistake, right? Uh, so now we're stuck with this disastrous move of vote by mail without, without thinking about how you support that with black voter education. So we're looking at North Carolina where 5% of all black ballots are being rejected. Uh, and that's because we're not valued as much as those quote white swing voters. So it is a valuation problem. I think uh, within the party, you gotta have a fundamental shift in leadership to really shift the, the entire dynamic the correct way. And you gotta have a shift around donors because donors continue to give money to who they know and they know white people and they don't know us. It's no accident that nationwide, the least supported people in the country for doing any kind of work are black women. And we see it every single day. What I did like, I do wanna say one thing for Harris yesterday that was powerful. She, when she talked about Brianna and Mike Pence looked like he was about to have a heart attack as she was doing it. I mean, he helped her with his facial expression of disdain. Um, that moment turned some people in her favor. The other moment was when he was messing with her about packing the courts. And she went through her, not only the history, but she ended up on the Court of Appeals. You've had 50 nominations and not black. one was. <laughs> and she said, black. She said, black. She hit it. And I think that, you know, those moments resonated with people. And it's no accident that 59% of all people said she won the debate and 69% of all women said it. Uh, and that that's interesting because, you know, there's been this problem that Stacey Abrams encountered where 70% of white women abandoned her, right? Over 70% of white women voted against her. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to see a little bit of repositioning there. Um, and so she's doing more work than the party probably thought she could do. The other thing that was fascinating about last night is that it's very clear to me that despite all their money, all their work, that the Republican Party has not figured out what to do with her. I mean, the fact that he pivoted from you're too soft to you're too hard to you're too, I mean, he was all over the place and people caught that. People caught that contradictory portrayal of her. And I think that it's, it's because they haven't quite figured it out. They just can't figure out what to do with her. And that's probably because once again, they don't have the right diversity of consultants either. And I really believe that until we you know, dismantle, we gotta, you know, we gotta dismantle the party systems. We gotta force them to restructure. We gotta force you know, fundamental change. Uh, and we gotta do what we're doing, which is thank God that there are people like us who have the ability to support voters and that 
give voters all the help that we're out there for the black voters. They know they got somebody who's out there for them. So I'm proud of black voters at this moment. And I wanna just continue to say, sisters, do what we do. Lead as we lead. Be the voting rights champions we are. We'll never forget Fannie Lou Hamer. We'll never forget everybody who paved this way for us. Surely the rest of them, we are them. Their spirit resides in us. And this moment will always be ours because we walk in the spirit. Thank you. Yes. So let me finish this round and Kirsten, you know, come back around to you. So I said at the top of the show that I don't typically like to do the black girl magic thing because sometimes it makes it seem like, you know, um, we need to be magical to survive. And we shouldn't normalize that need to be magical to survive. We should be able to survive just like anybody else. But it kind of seems like this is a moment where they're kind of relying on political black girl magic. You know, we're not going to put a whole lot of money uh, into mobilizing y'all, but we know that y'all can, you know, y'all can do it. And of course, we're going to try to do it because our lives are on the line. But the need to, to break this expectation that we can make a way out of no way, you know, to move from celebrating that to, to problematizing the conditions that make us have to be magical to survive. So here we are at this moment. Um, what's your sense of whether we can break out of that now? And, and if so, how? It's very hard, I think, when they put us in a position of, if we want to survive white supremacy, if we want to survive this violence, then we have to vote for this party. That's the bar. They're better than the Republican Party. At least we're not going to fall out and, and die from COVID-19. At least there won't be you know, tiki torches in the street. But until the Democratic Party, I think, reckons with its own violence and its own complicity, we will continue to be in this at this point, at this juncture. So for... Eight years, we're talking about the Obama, Obama administration, how much violence happened to Black people? How much did we have to push for while we can't wait? How much with the Black president, with a Black AG, how were police officers held accountable during those years? Look at Chicago with Laquan McDonald. What, what happened with those things? So until the Democratic Party, I think, reckons with its own violence and its own complicity, we'll face them kind of backing off when those conversations come up. So people can laugh and joke about, oh, everybody was talking about Hillary Clinton and super predators. It's cute. However, when we talk about the drug war and why the police were even at Breonna Taylor's house, right? And we're talking about arresting the boyfriend and, oh, it was drugs in the house. Crime bills matter. That matters. This is a direct reflection, a direct continuum of that kind of thinking. When we're in a moment where Black Lives Matter is considered to be you know, one of the largest social movements in history, we have a, a presidential nominee who's laughing about defunding the police. He's saying, it's, I'm not the guy that's saying that. Donald Trump is the guy that's saying that. I would never. What about anything that has ever come out of my mouth makes you think I would say anything like that? It's, it's disrespectful. It really, really is. So when we talk about the interest, I said a long time in 2016, I even said the Democratic Party is going to probably move a little bit further right because they can because they can, they're not going, when have they ever said, we're gonna go into these hoods, we're gonna go to the people and respect and listen to their voices and say, this is why I'm not voting. This is why I don't trust you. Going back to the primary, you would have thought that Joe Biden was, you know, golfing and sipping Mai Tais with Strom Thurmond. He was that bad of a person. 
And now we're supposed to just trust him. People aren't stupid. So there's some people, it's a political game to some people. And for some people, it's about their lives. It's not just a scrimmage, as Obama has said. And at the end of the day, we all come together as one, as one purple country. No, the hell is not. These people are violent. They're white supremacists. They won't even clearly say, it's hard to even get them to say he's racist. He will, you know, he believes in racist things or he won't disavow racist people. But how come we can't say this man at this point is an accessory to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people? What does that mean if we live in a country where our constitution and our structures can't even allow us to get rid of somebody like that, who is the antithesis of everything this country claims to stand for? There's nothing we can do. So my takeaway, when I see black girl magic, I would, I didn't really go into it with that mindset. Because at this point, like you said, it's not about being magical. We're trying to survive and we shouldn't have to be magical to survive. We shouldn't have to wonder because we have more pre-existing conditions. We have to go vote to save this country. But what if I bring COVID-19 back to my family? What if I die? So there's just, I don't know. I'm not feeling much magic right now, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just lost that wine somewhere, you know? Um, so uh, Alicia, you know, I'm, I'm coming back to you. Um, I did say, uh, I, I did want to come back to this question of how are those who are supposedly the standard bearer for the party that has most of our support, you know, responding to the attack on our efforts to fight racial injustice. So Black Lives Matter has been framed as a, a, a national security threat in the same way that Martin Luther King was, the same way that the Black liberation struggle has, the same assumption that uh, animated COINTELPRO that uh, tried to destroy uh, the Black liberation movement. So, so there's this category called Black identity extremists, which they call you know, many uh, Black Lives Matter organizations. And that is allowing them to justify treating them in the same way they treat the Klan. So this idea that anti-racism is racism is playing out in the federal government. So it's playing out at the FBI. And most recently, the president signed an executive order that effectively puts a gag order on federal efforts to train people in, in what racial bias looks like. They want to completely eliminate uh, critical race theory uh, as that that's the worst thing to happen to Western civilization. So they're going after both the mobilizations and um, the discourse of those mobilizations. So I was waiting last week for a robust denunciation uh, of this, not just getting on, on Trump for not denouncing the Proud Boys, but getting on Trump for effectively advancing Proud Boy politics at the federal level. I didn't really hear that. So <laughs> this, we're coming back to you, Alicia. So Kirsten is, is doing that. I don't know, I'm not feeling the love. And I'm kind of going, yeah, I'm not feeling the love either. But we got to do something in this moment. So how are you thinking about all this? Okay, well, I, I got a lot of thoughts. First of all, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how does it feel, right, to um, have done all this work for so many years, have it become so powerful, 
that the people in power would want to gut it. You know, we have been watching as this campaign over the last four years has really been driving this whole narrative about identity politics and how harmful it is to the fabric of this country. It has been driving and testing these notions around Black Lives Matter being terrorists. And it has been testing and driving this notion that you know, to talk about racism is to be racist. And this is their mode of governance. And so we shouldn't be surprised by that. I think the question is right though, which is what are we gonna do about it? And I think there's a couple of things for us to keep in mind. Number one, as I said earlier, we can't treat these things as a joke. It is actually a big deal that what they wanna do is block the ability of people to learn about how the rules are rigged in this country and rigged in such a way that it keeps some people out and some people behind and it propels some people forward. We saw this week that the University of Iowa, right, is following this federal mandate and now has uh, refused, right, to continue to do diversity and inclusion work, which is not necessarily critical race theory, but it's, it's all related in the sense that they are attacking uh, a revisioning and a deeper understanding of how we got to this place in the first place and what the implications are, not just for people who've been left out and left behind, but people who are being propelled forward. The other thing that I think is important for us to do is to take it seriously. So, you know, at first when this came out, people were doing things like making t-shirts saying, I'm a black identity extremist. Actually, that's not the kind of stuff we wanna be doing right now. What this is pointing to is a real desire to try to drive this movement underground. And I've been saying for a very long time that part of our fight right now is to make sure that our movement doesn't get driven underground. What needs to be driven underground and back into museums is white supremacy and white nationalism. And we need to stay focused on that. And then the third thing I would say we need to do is keep pushing these campaigns. I'm going to be 100% honest. I have had a lot of conversations with these campaigns, and I have been doing it for the last year, not starting 30 days before an election, but really trying to offer some tools to be able to bolster their position with our communities. And I can say that there are people in the campaign that want to help, that are struggling to try to get this right and they are up against a mountain. And part of the mountain that they're up against is a deep misunderstanding about how racism works and why, for example, people are out in the streets. There's a, it's like in a muscle memory, right? That whenever we talk about protests, we have to make sure to talk about broken windows. It's like a new muscle memory that whenever we wanna talk about racism, we have to be sure to talk about good people and bad people rather than, right? rules and policy. This is how we get the conversation about bad cops making it bad for good cops when that's actually not the point. I'm sure there's a lot of nice cops out there, but they're all enforcing the same rules. And that's the problem. I think we have to keep putting the pressure on. And I think we have to keep calling the campaign and tweeting them and writing them every time they use these tropes that aren't ours. And we have to keep pushing them and saying, we're not going to let you get away with this. Sometimes in moments like this, we get a desire because things are so bad and we need them to win. We get this desire to like not talk the mess that we need to talk to them, which is, hey, 
<laughs> you know, kind of like what Kamala did last night. She was ready to grab that man's ear and be like, say it again, right? Through the clenched teeth. And we gotta do that too. And it can't be Black Lives Matter. It's gotta be everybody with a conscience saying, you're not gonna get away with that in my name, okay? There's things you can compromise on, but this ain't one of them. That's, and, and, you know, and, you know, they're trying to frame racism so narrowly uh, that it is only about bad people with bad motives, with bad intentions. So if you can't talk about structural racism, then what, what, what's left to talk about? You know, the idea of the, of the racist in the woodshed. So, you know, it's once again, a catch 22 uh, that they're trying to, to force us into, you know, nationalizing uh, an idea that anti-racism is racist, which is the philosophy of the Proud Boys and many of these other organizations. So um, it's a wake up call for, for folks who don't really follow what these uh, executive orders do. It's a wake-up call for folks who, you know, might not know what is critical race theory and, and what is implicit bias. Actually, it, it behooves us to know this because we need to defend these things at this moment that they're trying to literally rip our tongues out. So uh, we're actually at the end. Um, Barbara, we've got one minute to say something about uh, the court. So I'm going to leave you with uh, the last word on what What's coming with this nomination and why we need to fight it like our life depends on it. And then I'll close us out. We got one minute. The courts have had five cases, the Supreme Court this year, uh, dealing with voting and everyone has been a disaster. They will not help uh, voters. They will not. Don't waste your time trying to go to the Supreme Court. They have no interest. They have decided in this era that their role is to consolidate white supremacy. And if I make him, you know, we talked about black women saving this country. Actually, that's not what any of us should be about. We got to transform this country to make it worthy of being uh, saved. It has to transform. You know, the problem is that with black men, we're talking about toxic masculinity, is that they think freedom, some of them, means having the same kind of patriarchal hegemony that white men have. Uh, that's not what we want. So I think that, you know, black women have always been, you know, at the forefront, and black men too, a lot of them, at the forefront of challenging this country to be transformed, to be different. We gotta have a transformational agenda. And anything short of that is not worth the engagement. Um, the uh, Justice and Policing Act, they're giving more money to the DOJ, to policing departments, et cetera. It's the wrong framework. It's the wrong thoughts. So we have to really you know, just go out there and understand that this is our mission. And that part of that mission will be what we do between now and November 3rd to vote, uh, to demand a different setup, and then the push like hell because everything doesn't end whenever the election is resolved. Democracy is also about accountability. And so we gotta have that fight and we gotta keep on fighting. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. And that's why her organization is called the Transformative Justice Coalition. She moves us from reform to transform and reminds us it is one thing to vote to remove the cancer, but that removal is not enough. 
we are going to have to stay activated and motivated like we did not in the last two uh, presidential administrations, meaning electing someone is only part of it. We have to stay active. We have to mobilize, and that will be our challenge. So I want to thank all of you for joining us. A very special thank you to our panelists, Barbara Arnwine, Alicia Garza, look out for her book. And thanks to uh, Representative Barbara Lee and Kirsten West Savali. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Sheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Luis Garcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.